kampanyalar ortasidagi hujjat ayır boşlaş muamali cerayon. Xodimlar hujjatlarni chop etishadi, rahbarlarga muhr bostirib qo'l qo'ydirishadi. Keyin hujjatlarni kerakli joyga yetkazib berish uchun kurerlarni chaqirtirishadi va hamkorlarga yuborishadi. Bu jarayon xarajatli va ko'p vaqtni oladi. Eng xavotirlisi hujjatni ortga qaytib kelishi. Hech kim bu jarayon qachon sodir bo'lishini bilmaydi. Biznesni qog'ozbozlik muammosidan qutqarish vaqti keldi. Unga yangi, dinamik ritmni kiritish vaqti keldi. Dox bu biznes hamkorlar bilan hujjat ayr boshlashning yangi xizmat tuvi. Sizni bir es hujjatingiz endi elektron imzolanishi mumkin va shu onda yoq hamkoringizga yuboriladi. Yoki Dox saytida uni o’zingiz tezda to’ldirishingiz va hamkoringizga yuborishingiz mumkin bo’ladi. Elektron imzolangan barcha hujjatlar o’z qo’lingiz bilan qog’ozda imzolangan hujjatlarga tenglashtiriladi va bitimlar tuzishda dalil sifatida ko’rsatilishi mumkin. Bu haqda O'zbekiston Respublikasining elektron tijorat haqidagi qonunida belgilangan. Didoxda ishlashni boshlash uchun saytdan ro'yxatdan o'tish kifoya yoki bir S dasturingizdan servis xizmati haqini bir oydan keyin to'lasangiz ham bo'laveradi. Agar sizga ma'qul kelmasa, pul berishingiz shart emas. Uni hujjatlarni qabul qilish uchun bepul ishlatsangiz ham bo'laveradi. Shuningdek, Didoxga hamkoringizni ham ulashga yordam beramiz. Didoxni ishlatib Matın terish va chiqarishga 85 foizgacha vaqtingizni tejaysiz. Hujjatlarni qayta ko'rib chiqish uchun vaqtingiz tejaladi. Shuningdek, hamkorlaringizdan pul o'tkazmalarini olish tezlashadi. Didox hujjatlarni elektron tarzda imzolang. Bu tezkor, ishonchli va qonuniy. Hello everyone. Uh, my name is Bersat Hoshimov and it's Hoshimov Economics. And we have a special guest today. Uh, our guest is uh, Suma Chakrabarti. Welcome, Suma. Thank you very much. Good to be on your program. Uh, thank you for uh, taking time. Uh, and I'll introduce you. Suma Chakrabarti is an advisor to the President of Uzbekistan on economic development, good governance, and international cooperation. Uh, he's also an advisor on economics for, uh, to the President of Kazakhstan. Prior uh, this role, he was a president of the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development. And um, before joining EBRD, uh, he was a senior civil servant, permanent secretary at the UK government. Um, thanks again and welcome. Uh, so I'll start uh, with your new role. So can you tell us a little more about your, your role? How is it managed logistically? And how often do you communicate with, with the president? Um, and does, uh, say, every legislative um, initiative of the of, of, of the president goes through your office. Well, thanks very much uh, for that introduction. Um, so my role is uh, across three very broad pillars, if you like. I advise the president on, firstly, on what I would call economic strategy and economic reform. That's pillar one. Um, it covers a very wide set of issues, and I can get into more detail on some of those later. Um, but essentially, it's about moving the um, create, you know, momentum on economic reform, pushing that forward uh, quite heavily. The second pillar is on making the Uzbek uh, public administration more effective. Um, I think everyone who has had anything to do with the Uzbek public administration knows that it needs um, further reform, further movement really, um, to become more efficient and more effective. And so there are a number of uh, ideas that I've put forward for trying to help with that as well. The third pillar, 
is about communications and branding, domestic communications, particularly where Mr. President has been very keen to have more of a two-way communication between state and uh, the citizens, and also with business, and the style of communication is still quite very much in one direction, and rather than uh, receiving in both ways, although it has opened up, I would say, um, uh, more than it used to uh, be the case. And the other part is the international branding of the country as well. So here it's very much, uh, obviously the brand image improved a lot uh, after the change in president and after some of the reforms in 17, 18 and 19. Uh, but we are now you know, five years on and we need to always with any brand, you need to keep uh, trying to do things that will keep it uh, good in the international mind. So reform here, I think economic and political reform will be very important to maintaining the, the brand status, improved brand status of, of Uzbekistan. And, and there are plenty of countries to learn from who have done a lot to improve their brands in, in recent years, including former uh, command economies as well. Take the Baltic states or Georgia as examples. So those are the three broad areas. I see the president <coughs> on every visit to Tashkent. Um, I built up a very empathetic, I think, and close relationship with him when I was president of EBRD, uh, and that continues to this day. So when we meet, we usually spend quite a bit of time together, sometimes we eating together, uh, and it's usually just one-to-one -to -one with one interpreter uh, as well. There. That's all there is. And so it's a very, very uh, open and frank relationship. Um, I'm an advisor, so I, my expectations are simply that I will be listened to, but not everything I say can be acted on. And uh, the president is very open with me. There are some things he can move forward with, some things that he can move forward with later maybe, uh, and some things that really in Uzbek culture may be more difficult to move with. So it's a very open um, discussion always with him. He encourages that. And it's a warm discussion. I mean, you know, he knows about my family. I know about his family. I've met them. And uh, so it goes beyond just being a sort of professional advisor as such as well. But you asked also this question about whether every piece of legislation in Uzbekistan goes through my unit. I can only say, thank God, no, it doesn't. That would be, that would drive me and my unit mad, I think, if that was the case. There's so much, uh, so many decrees, so much legislation. No, it, we're very much focused on these three areas. And even in those areas, we're not the lead. We're, we're advisory. So the lead is with the ministers and ministries. And so they don't clear uh, their um, uh, pieces of legislation or decrees with, with me at all. Uh, obviously, I've been involved in some things which are very direct. For example, in this last week, my own roadmap was approved. Um, so I was obviously very uh, pleased with that. But also the Agency for Strategic Development decree was also approved. And that's important. I've been involved with those two ideas. So, you know, I, it's pretty much I get involved in certain things only. Um, there's just too much, I think, for one person to try and cover everything. I think there are, uh, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, you said there are things that that are in Uzbek culture that doesn't let you or President to move forward. So, so can you can you just give a, a brief example? I didn't quite understand that. Um, so if you, if you take um, the whole question of, for example, to give you a concrete example, um, in some countries, you know, you would have uh, debates um, presidential debates, for example, between candidates very openly that and you, you, you're in America right now. So, you know, you know, that system very well. 
Uh, it's the same in the UK. Um, but in many, not just Uzbekistan, but many Central Asian countries and others, that isn't really part of the culture um, to debate on stage openly with your opponents, uh, your ideas. Um, and I think that day may come one day, but it's not there yet. And I think that's, uh, we should recognize those sorts of things. Um, the style of political culture is, is still developing and it's not part of the Uzbek culture as yet to do that. That's one area. But at the same time, I mean, the fact that you and I can have this conversation, uh, we couldn't have had this five years ago. Um, that's for sure. Uh, until the president came, he opened this space up so that we can actually uh, talk about these things in a, you know, in a more open way than was possible in the past. So, you know, it's also true that in every culture, things change over time. So they're not fixed forever. <laughs> in any I hope so, years. too. Yeah. No, I think we should all hope that in every culture, uh, including my own one in UK. I'm very much, you know, grateful for the opportunity to be able to like speak uh, my mind freely and like I do, I do write and and you know, I, I do write without sort of repercussions or anything. Um, so I think it's easier to find, you know, similarities between countries and states and and development. Uh, but if we talk about key differences, what are the key differences between current uh, state of Uzbekistan? with that of other uh, countries that had similar experiences that were part of sort of Eastern Bloc or Soviet Union or Central Asia? Like, how do you think we differ from our Central Asian neighbors or our Eastern European neighbor? I mean, former sort of former Eastern European Bloc uh, in terms of our sort of development and growth and, you know, institutions. So I think um, your last word actually sums up some of the differences, institutions. I think because the Baltic states, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, um, Bulgaria, Romania, they all uh, had a destination they wanted to reach, which was EU membership, a club they wanted to join. They had to um, put in place a number of institutional changes, uh, really that would make them fit for membership of the EU. Uh, So if you look at one of the biggest differences between Uzbekistan and also generally in Central Asia, but Uzbekistan and some of those countries is the institutions, the uh, public institutions, the public administration institutions, uh, as well as also, I would say, some of the market facing uh, economic institutions as well, the independence of those institutions. That's one quite clear difference. Now, even within the Central Asian region, uh, I would say um, Uzbekistan, because it was quite closed for 25 years after independence, it didn't do some of the things that neighboring Kazakhstan did. Actually, Kazakhstan's done some of those things early, but also more recently. And I think Uzbekistan is beginning to move in the same direction, which is creating, even when you have a bureaucratic system, which is still quite Soviet in, uh, in the way it operates, functions, uh, mindsets, um, what the Kazakhs did was create one or two institutions which were quite different. Um, and where you have quite modern corporate governance, you know, Western management uh, approaches and so on. Um, I'm thinking of the Astana International Financial Center, for one, even Samrat Kazina, Baiterek, they're all... Um, now, that doesn't mean that the Kazakh public administration has changed, but it means they've created these almost these islands of good practice from which they can borrow good ideas to put into the regular public service, if you like. Uzbekistan, I think, was, is now starting to do that with the, this new agency, Strategic Development. Um, obviously, we'll have to see in two or three years' time whether I'm right or not. But I think this agency is an opportunity 
to create a different way of doing business. And, and for me, it's exciting because I did the same for the Blair government in 1997 when they came to power. They wanted um, to create something within the uh, civil service, which was going to be different from the rest of the civil service. And I created what became the strategy unit, similar to the Agency for Strategic Development. And I created it in a, in a style which was quite different from the regular public service. So we could attract in private sector people, academics, all sorts of different types of people, not just civil servants into the thing. And they would come for six months and they would go and they would do specific pieces of work. And that way, of course, also it meant that you could, they would be continue to be paid the salary they already had and they wouldn't lose out by coming into a public job. I think some things like that would be really quite innovative in Uzbekistan, but I think it would also change the way the public administration works. But I would say at the heart of your question, it's institutions which are quite different. You know, another comparison, not just to, because Uzbekistan is not alone in this, another comparison would be between Ukraine and Poland. In 1991, they had pretty much the same per capita GDP. Um, and the difference now is enormous. And one of the things the Poles got right was both central and local government uh, capacity building and really building institutions of the state that would function well. And Ukraine has never invested in those things at all until very recently when they started to do that. Um, so public institutions matter a lot for economic development um, and getting those right is important. So that is a big agenda of reform for Uzbekistan, I think. You worked for EBRD for quite a bit, and EBRD has certain values and policies uh, when it comes to certain types of institutions like inclusion, um, you know, political freedoms, democracy, and so on and so forth, which are you know all very you know noble goals. And, and in your current role as an advisor, you're not sort of bound by those sort of policies and goals. But like, do you think you still share those values of of what EBRD proclaims, or do you think those values or policies that EBRD claims at least uh, publicly were not helping you, for example? What, what, was it more of a constraint or what, was it something that you share as well? No, it, it's uh, very much something I share. Um, so it's my values don't change because I change institutions uh, or change my employer. One of the nice things about being at my age, you can pick and choose. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to work for the, these people if you don't want to. So I, you know, the decision I made to work in Uzbekistan um, after EBRD was because I believe Uzbekistan is on a journey. It's a long journey. You know, I describe it like, um, you know, long sort of, there are long, lots of different ways to get from point A to point B, but you have to make a judgment as to whether you think the country is broadly moving in the right direction, even if you don't agree with everything that's happening. It's always got to be a sort of, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, sort of judgment. And there was the same at EBRD. So EBRD in certain extreme situations, uh, for example, in Belarus, um, in 2010, after the presidential election in 2010, uh, they had severe uh, problems, big riots, protests, and EBRD then decided not to lend any more to the Belarus state institutions because it couldn't justify working with a state that behaved that way. So it only worked with the private sector. Now again in Belarus, then they, Belarus then started reforming again, and so EBRD could work with the state sector again, but now again, they've had the same problem and they've had to, so even EBRD is able to flex its um, response, depending on the, the situation. But I, I, you know, this is a journey that uh, advanced economies like the U or societies like the UK has been on since, let's say, the 18th century, or even earlier, maybe in the UK with Magna Carta. So I don't expect any society to be transformed politically 
and economically in one in one uh, you know few years even it's a long journey that's uh, and it's an important question i always ask myself is do i still believe this uh, leadership of this country still believes in that journey and is acting in the national interest not in the personal interest and i do in the case of uzbekistan i do believe that that is the journey they're on what is an evidence that you built for yourself to come to this answer meaning like is there a checklist that you are like if if they do one two three that means this or or is it more or is it more like like feelings and you know something that is not very codifiable in terms of deciding which countries it, it's it's a, it's a mix of those things actually so um you're absolutely right that you know if you're an EBRD um they do a uh, you know every time they do a country strategy they have a full analysis of the politics and you know and quite a few EBRD countries or operations would say yes they are still applying the principles that are in the EBRD um founding document but they would also say albeit imperfectly uh, and that would be true for many countries i think um that would be perfectly fair judgment and ebrd does that by going through a set of you know i think 14 criteria it has to do all that that that's the sort of rigorous approach to it but leading at the end still to a political judgment because the criteria are not scores they're sort of you know yes on this one they're going forward on this one not they're stuck this one they've gone backwards so it's an overall judgment and then on top of that you have to have at sort of the level i was operating at at ebrd or even now a personal judgment as to whether you think there are some bad things going on some good things going on but do i believe in the leader that i'm advising that he is really on the on the right road and he wants and he pursues and he actually cares about the road and he wants to pursue it and in president mizozoyev i do believe that i think this was a huge break from the past um a huge risk taken uh, by him personally uh to push ahead on these reforms um and i know because i've spoken to him many times just you know on my own with him his personal commitment to this um and the, no, the hours he spends trying to drive this change and how frustrated he sometimes gets as well when he visits the regions or something like that and he finds the change is not happening quite as quickly or in the way he wanted it to happen um and you know that's uh, so i have also to build in my personal belief in that leader in t- before making my decisions about you know uh what i'm doing thank you thank you for answer actually i listened to a talk at a hard talk at bbc about azerbaijan they, they asked yeah. you a similar question so i i think i understand at that time you were a president of ebrd and then you are answering a sort of a uh, 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 international civil servant and right now uh thanks for sharing uh what you think um you've thought about development economics i think throughout your entire career you worked at you know department for international development and you know in in different roles but you are sort of very much committed into international development which is in your opinion is a bigger problem for the developing world first is it that leaders of developing countries do not know what to do or for the most of it um do you think the leaders of the developing world do not want to do because if you look at last you know 30 to 40 years per capita income growth in 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 many places including say uzbekistan was pretty low and and for uzbekistan let's say we know you know what's the reason but like overall what's your sort of assessment for that it's a really interesting question i mean i guess my reflection as you say after many years 
involved in international development is that leaders, they often know what to do. And if they don't know what to do, they, they can access people like me and advisors to tell them what to do, advise them to what to do. The issue is really the decision that they have to make. And the decision is often a hard one. Uh, and this goes, by the way, for whether you're in a full democracy or in a you know guided democracy or moving in the right direction democracy, whatever category you're in, it's the same sort of judgment call, is you're balancing as a leader what's in your uh, national interest with what's maybe in your party interest or your uh, personal interest as well. And that's the balance that um, is very difficult. Um, and if you then have election cycles, you put it into that mix, then a, a leader can be driven towards short-term thinking. The best leaders are those who don't think in election cycles, who think long-term and can offer a vision of the long-term that is also winning them elections in the short-term. I mean, you know, I, I thought Tony Blair in the UK was very good at that, having a long-term vision, but persuading everyone every, every few years to vote for his party by sticking to the long-term vision and, and showing how it was changing the country. That's the, that's the gift of real leadership. And I think, again, I'd say President Mezuzoya does have that gift. He, he has an understanding of who he wants to get to. You know, he, he's not someone who's grown up in a market economy. Uh, so he hasn't got that experience of uh, what does a market economy do compared with the command economy. But he, he's, he, he knows the situation. He's looked at the comparisons. He knows that Uzbekistan has to move in that direction if it's to, as you say, have higher per capita income growth uh, and drive out poverty uh, in the regions. Um, and he has a long-term vision for trying to do that. Um, and so he can marry, he's someone who is able to marry the national long-term interest uh, with what he needs to do as a leader today. And that's the unusual balance that he can get, he has got, um, that in some emerging markets and some other, and some advanced markets, some leaders don't have. Uh, they tend to be very short-termist. But isn't it because of the sort of political realities of, of of the state in a way in, in some other you know countries and regions you know th there is more sort of uh political competition if you will and then the the short-termism prevails pr primarily because of you know pressures uh, like electoral pressures and then in uzbekistan they don't sort of have that pressure to the point that that would you know what i'm trying to say is that isn't it because of yeah. the electoral system that that's how, how, how it, it is. can be it can be but i would point out to you that uh, those electoral pressures were you know there for thatcher or blair and these yeah. are people who had a clear vision of how they want to change their country and kept winning elections um as well so you can somehow find that right balance of doing the both yes i mean there's no doubt contested elections contestability political competition um, you know, makes some things more difficult uh, to do, but it's possible still to do it, uh, as some leaders have shown. Um, and, you know, over time, I mean, the political uh, space in Central Asia generally is more and more, as more and more freedom is granted, you know, people will start contesting and arguing about reforms more openly. They probably anyway did so at home, but they'll be able to do it more openly. And that's a challenge that uh, the modern leaders in Central Asia will have to get used to. I, I personally think that's a good thing. It's a good development. Um, and to have your generation, you know, <laughs> challenging 
um, ideas and, you know, that uh, can only improve the uh, overall politics and economics in the countries. Let's move into the specific reforms that I want to ask your opinion uh, about. You know, many Asian countries, especially in East Asia, in the late 80s and, and you know, 90s, were they started at least as, as you know the the popular narrative says with with land reform so they reformed their agriculture they sort of gave land to the to the farmers you know then to opinion china and so forth and then that agriculture pro- productivity lead to their you know growth and development that's sort of a popular narrative in the past 30 years uzbekistan hasn't i think moved in the direction of actually reforming the agri- agriculture the government has the main role there you know they they order how much you know cotton and uh, wheat you have to produce, and then they actually doze out or you know, basically command the economy in, in agriculture, and which makes farmers very much dependent on local authorities. And you know the fruits of the labor of farmers are not really sort of captured by farmers themselves. So the incentives to improve productivity and so forth is not there. So why do you think this is happening? And is the answer you know more political than than economic? And and if yes, that what what it is? You in a way have answered your own question. Um, I think uh, there are in, in Uzbekistan, and I have not done a study of the agricultural sector, but it's one of the things I think does need to be looked at uh, in greater depth. But it's quite clear that the state role um, in sort of you know having this uh, buying you know, a certain amount of production every year, the relationship between Hokims and, uh, uh, and farmers, this is, these are huge constraints, frankly, agriculture. So at uh, the same time, it's quite clear that the state isn't yet ready to agree to sort of um, sufficient land reform that would, uh, that would move away from just selling leaseholds to actually selling freehold. The state isn't ready for that, clearly. So somehow, some things have got to change. Obviously, the state has got to get out of, uh, even if it's not willing to move to freehold uh, sales, this lease has to agree to very long-term leasehold uh, mm-hmm. so that investors might want to invest in this uh, sector. Secondly, um, particularly investors who will, I think, maybe change the capital labor ratio in, in these sectors, so productivity should go up because it should become a little bit more capital intensive. Um, and also they'll bring in some modern management practices uh, that they've got, which will help, I think, both with technology and with management uh, of the farms. I also think um, this, and I don't know enough about it, but so many people have complained to me about how local Hakeems hold, uh, you know, uh, basically this is like a vested interest bank for them. Uh, right. that and that, that linkage needs breaking. Uh, to allow much more independence uh, of the farmers and so on. So this is, you know, everyone, as everyone always tells me, this is a very delicate issue in Uzbekistan because it's still a huge part of the GDP, but it's not very productive, I agree with you, but it also employs a huge number of people as well, so this sector. So people are very cautious about how much reform they can do. But I, I would like, for example, to see a, um, a review of the cluster system to see whether it's working or not. I think that's necessary and that's in my roadmap that was you know, approved. Uh, I think that's a big issue. I also want to see this new decree on land uh, that's been put through and see whether they make a difference. I think there's also a new decree on uh, anti-corruption, which about Hakeem's in particular targeting. So. These are all inter- interesting building blocks to see whether this sector can be changed um, as well. But as I said, I haven't really looked at it in detail, but I think you're absolutely right. This is a sector that needs huge reform. 
to make it a much better part of the economy. Yeah, I agree with your assessment about you know Hakim's uh, authority, and I think that um, the the main challenge I, I don't think it's it's whether it's freehold or like leasehold because you know they are giving it for fifty years. In my view, the main challenge is that the sort of eminent domain sort of idea in a way that Hakims can basically write their own reasoning for taking out your land actually mm. gives them a, a too much power over you know court and other judiciary systems and then at will they can take out your your land uh, if, if they wish to uh, and I think the idea that Hakim can take out can take away your land actually you know discourages investment and also uh, puts like a balance of power in a very skewed way towards sort of authorities. And uh, in that sense, I was thinking like, what are the sort of costs of, of getting rid of that? Like, and, you know, I still quite, quite don't understand it, but um, I think about it and, and I would be glad if you, you know, go, go through and, you know, look, look through it because. Sure. I well, I mean, you're encouraging me to do that. And I, I'm actually one of my next trips. I'm, I need to get out, out of Tashkent. Uh, and into a couple of regions. And actually, funny enough, that is one of the issues I, I want to go and look at very directly. Um, it has been said to me also, like you said, that a 50-year leasehold, that's, you know, in some sense, very, very good. It's similar to having freehold, except as long as the state um, observes the 50-year point and doesn't try and then change the rules of the game later. With freehold, it's more difficult for the state to change the rules of the game. But on the Hakim's point, it's, it's also not just about the Hakim's relationship with the farmers. Uh, I have heard plenty of stories about Hakim's interfering with foreign investors who've invested in agriculture as well. Uh, yeah. If the foreign investor doesn't do what the Hakim says, immediately the Hakim starts um, being difficult over uh, many issues. Um, so this is, this is infecting the uh, investment climate the sector as well yeah i think the constraints and, and you know like hakims are also like i think they're of, of economic actors and they're not doing it just for you know fun of it mm. i think one of the constraints they face is that they have a plan on you know certain goods that they have to sort of submit and then when they're distributing the land they care much they care a lot about how their plans would be met so one of the i think the biggest constraints to the hakims powers right now or their responsibilities to like meet those plans and that's why it's, it's a downwards it's almost yeah, like yeah. a knee-jerk reaction in which like the farmers are i mean they blame hakims but the idea is like, i think the plant the plant economy is, is is to blame i mean in my in my you know humble opinion if, if you will um you know let me ask you a more philosophical question again you know you know many growth enhancing policies that we know are common central right like removing trade barriers or removing uh, taxes for 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 imports and so on privatizing government-owned uh, property and companies um, so that the more efficient owners will uh, be investing and increase the productivity, opening up movement of people and of capital, uh, prudent fiscal policy, independence of central banks, or um, designing government regulation that prefers the consumer welfare and competition over the interests of uh, you know, captured industries. Um, although those things are quite obvious, do you think that you know, obvious or, or maybe to you or maybe to me, I'm not sure this this is obvious. Like I'm just saying it, it, it's as if obvious because it, it is to me, maybe I'm biased in this way. But do you think that th those ideas are like hard to understand or because of the constraints that exist, we aren't moving forward in, in those directions? Like in terms of trade, for example, in terms of regulatory, in terms of privatization, like what's your take on that? But, uh, you're right. It's a, very, it's a very big question. So... Uh, first of all, 
what may seem obvious in my life, my experiences, what may seem obvious to me or to you is not always obvious to everyone else. Um, and one has to recognize that as an advisor. You know, so all the things you listed there, yes, they're obvious to me and you, um, although there are arguments about some of those things, but they're fairly accepted these days. But if you go to a very rural area, maybe, um, would they all be obvious? And, you know, I, I know enough people in Uzbekistan, even in Tashkent, of an older generation who already have, um, shall we say, wonderful memories of the Soviet Union and what it did for them. And these are probably quite romantic memories. They're probably it's not even true, some of the memories, but they are, <laughs> they are part of their belief system. They fear change because they know they knew something that worked for them. Worked for them in a very simple, basic needs way. They, whereas what we're promising with all the list of changes you said is something that is not yet tangible to them. And they also know that there are plenty of stories in making that shift, whether it's in Russia or in other places in Eastern Europe, that actually things got worse for, quite, for a while before they got better because of the transition process as you know, companies closed and things like that, or privatizations that didn't work well and so on. So there are a lot of urban myths that grow, or not just urban, rural myths <laughs> that grow. That's number one. We There's a lot of need to make what may sound obvious to me and you um, better understood to people uh, who may not see it as obvious. And that's one of the things about communication that's why your program is important because you know it's it programs like this that should over over time bring a healthier debate about these issues um and you know you i hope you maybe you've done this already maybe you should interview some older members of the uzbek society and ask them to compare life then with life now and life what they what they want in the future and have that debate more openly i think the second thing though i think also in that list of wonderful lists you gave gave of uh, what would constitute a modern economy, um, is always to ask the question, the political economy question, who actually is gaining by the current situation and would be against the reforms? And it's not necessarily the poor people at all. And it's actually yeah. quite, quite wealthy people. Quite who are opposite, gaining, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who are gaining exactly. from no change. And they're the ones who also have access to political leaderships and to power and can try and prevent change. So whether it's, um, you know, things like trade issues, uh, trade restrictions, someone is gaining always. Um, you know, if you have an import ban, someone is gaining because, <laughs> you know, you're, you're basically reducing their competition. So, um, so always with privatizations, you know, uh, there are some very wealthy individuals involved with the state enterprises right now. Uh, yeah in Uzbekistan, they don't want privatization. Or if they do, they, would want, they want just to turn a state monopoly into a private monopoly, whereas we want competition, uh, really. Um, so, and that's the hard job that President uh, Mrs. Zoyev, uh, other presidents of emerging countries have, because these powerful vested interests um, also uh, have access to other, other players in the political system and can try and prevent change as well. Um, so a continual chess game is gets played with these sort of people. But, you know, you need determination in this situation. And that's that we have. So uh, you answered one of the questions that are in the list. So like one of the things I was trying to ask about the economy of uh, the emergence of the rent seeking economy in which uh, we're trying yeah. to get away from the public monopoly, basically to the private monopoly with, with living the 
the regulatory sort of capture of those industries by, by, by the state. And then basically state is giving out this freebies of protected industries. And, uh, you know, one thing that kind of bothers me a lot is that the, say, trade restrictions, so, but anything, but like the trade restrictions is much cleaner to see, is that, you know, uh, basically the import taxes and so on, the benefits of those are very concentrated. And the costs of taxes, import taxes, are very sort of dissipated across across the board, right? So if yeah. you know, if you put an import tax on sugar, for example, like everybody's gonna pay more for sugar, but it's like such a tiny amount that people don't sort of realize, you know, what's going on. But the people who gain are are very concentrated. They're like, you know, handful of them. And so what what happens, like in terms of political economy, is that those people can, you know, concentrate their efforts in terms of pushing those those policies, but people who sort of pay that. Uh, although the amount they lose is larger than the amount the other people gain is, is you know, much larger, you know, the amounts. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to sort of cooperate. And I don't see a solution here. Like, how, 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 how's your take here? You know, it, it's really hard for people to say, you know, the sugar is going to be one cent more for, for a cup. And then people are like, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> that, that's the thing I kind of struggle with. So I think, I think the thing that people are not aware of in the way that you are, um, you're more aware than I am of these things, uh, is, you know, the handful of people who gain. These are people who live in the shadows, the handful of people who gain, right? And the wider public isn't really wholly aware who these people are. They probably know that someone is gaining. They don't necessarily know who. And this is where, this is going to be a long journey, clearly, but this is where the sort of freer, freer press, freer media really matters. Freer political debate in parliament really matters. So programs like yours, you know, you, even if it's still not possible for you to name publicly who these people are, right. I think I think then you would have a problem probably. Yeah. Um, but by saying simply that, look, this, and giving this example, that this, this, this rent seeking is actually the rent is going to this group of people, small group, public becomes more and more aware of this sort of thing. Um, it ha- I mean, in, in a, let, let's take an example like India, um, which is, you know, full democracy. Um, and in the early 90s, when um, the Indians started reforming, doing their economic reforms, it used to be called the License Raj. So yeah. whoever controlled the licenses, you know, had all the rent-seeking power. Actually, part of the democratization of the debate around this was to expose this sort of behavior and to show the public that they were actually paying higher prices because of the uh, control over licenses. That and you don't have to name people. You can just do it by going to the public and saying, "You, you know, you realize this is what's being skimmed off by uh, those who control these licenses." But this, this, I'm afraid, this will take a long time because you, you know, you're going to have to keep uh, coming up with new case studies of different sectors and different places, things that really matter to people, you know. Um, so in India, what really mattered was rice and onions, things like that. So the rationing of rice, you know, if you went to an Indian market in the, in, until the early 90s, you had a ration card and you could buy uh, rationed rice. But if you had a bit more money, you could buy rice on the black market, as it was called then, um, as well, and better quality rice as well. And basically, this, this became exposed completely as a sort of untenable thing. And the media did a wonderful job of exposing its parliamentary questions and debates. And um, you don't see that anymore. So it's gone. Uh, 
but I can remember it from my childhood. So yeah, me too. I mean, I remember uh, the U.S. dollars being something like rice in India. We had a black market. Yeah. We had the rationing yeah. carts for dollars. Yeah. So like yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we. No, I remember. Got... I remember when we went to convertibility of the exchange. I mean, the, the exchange rate. It was just quite astonishing, really, because um, that was an attack on vested interests. It was. Uh, yes. Yes. I remember. Yeah. Uh, and th th that's the thing I, I really think one of the what was one of the most important reforms uh, of, the, of the president, because uh, at that time, I mean, I was in Tashkent, I mean, uh, back and forth and so on. When I spoke to people and, and some government officials, some were like sincerely thinking that, you know, the, the this system is, is working uh, and, and some were and some people, you know, like the the. Uh, the the optimists were making money out of it, right? If you will, and uh, and I and I thought this this is unsolvable unless the political will will step up. And in, in you know, lo and behold, like the day I like I flew out from Tashkent in September something I forgot the date, and then when I touched down to the U.S., I open up the news and it's like the decree on convertatsa, meaning like conversion. Of yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow. It must be September 2017. It would yeah, would have yeah. been. No, I I remember well, and I also remember the president <laughs> telling me that he. Even those who had asked, who agreed with him that this needed to be changed, um, and I think even the IMF thought it would take longer. Um, so I remember many of the reformists saying, "Do yes, Mr. President, but slowly in stages." And he actually sp speeded up the whole timetable. He decided, "No, if we're going to do it, we're going to just do it." Yeah, I think a lot of reforms are like that in Uzbekistan. They are low-hanging fruits, you know, and that's why I think, uh, and, and that's why I'm, I'm so concerned. Sorry to to. Let's, well, reform let's... is emotional. So, <laughs> uh, I, I think we have some like 15 minutes as far as I understand. So let me yeah. uh, move to some of details. Um, you know, let's talk about foreign direct investments. In 2019, it was the highest level of foreign direct investments in our history. And, um, but it's still in absolute terms is very, very low. If you look compared to say Georgia, we were barely higher than Georgia. And I think even lower. Um, and that's a country that is 10 times slower, uh, 10 times smaller, and which, you know, 30% of it is, is currently occupied war. And so, you know, although, yeah, it's not like 600 million like the year before, but still it's just like, you know, very, very small. Like, why do you think foreigners are not investing in Uzbekistan? What's your sort of main, um, main so, diagnosis? Yeah, sure. So, um, and you make a good comparison with uh, Georgia as well. Um, I think, uh, you know, you can go into the nitty gritty, you can look at the doing business survey results and so on. That's fine. I mean, doing business survey is a nice uh, league table. Most countries have worked out, including Uzbekistan, how to game that uh, league table, in my view. Um, so I prefer to really ask the investors what they think. And they tell me two or three things, big things. One is um, the rule of law. Uh, rule of law in different countries. So they, they have choices to make, right? They can choose Uzbekistan, yeah. they can choose Georgia, they can choose wherever. Why they find, um, in particularly in Uzbekistan, they don't wholly believe that the justice system is as transparent and fair as it would be if there was a dispute between the foreign investor and the state. So it's noticeable that more and more of the foreign investment contracts are coming to Uzbekistan the dispute resolution is often uh, written down as in London because they have belief in English common law. So one question I think uh, that I'm posing, uh, and it's in my roadmap, is Uzbekistan should consider creating a, a special jurisdiction using English common law. I mean, Astana has done this already, uh, and it's been a great success in attracting a lot of foreign investors, new foreign investors. 
So rule of law and dispute resolution under English common law is I think one big thing that could change them. Secondly, um, there is also a belief amongst um, some foreign investors that Uzbekistan has been very slow to resolve outstanding disputes between investors and the state. It's one of the indicators. And of course, again, if the country has a reputation for not actually on, you know, resolving disputes, then the investors talk to each other and say, look, it's you know, easier to go to another country, frankly, where they're more likely to, if there's a dispute, there are always disputes, more likely to resolve them. Thirdly, and again, in my roadmap, I've said, we need to resolve these disputes. Thirdly, I think, um, uh, although I think it's good that we have a Ministry of Investment and Foreign Trade, it's still not a one-stop shop. If you're coming as a new investor to Uzbekistan, you still have to navigate across many state organizations, and you still then have to deal with the regional side as well, the Hakims and so on. And many investors have said um, that, although MIFT understands the language of business and what to do, many other parts of government or in the region, they don't understand at all. And therefore it's very, very high in transaction costs in dealing with the Uzbek state if you want to come uh, into this. And fourthly, and my last point really, in uh, I think there's also a concern amongst many, many foreign investors that a lot of direct deals are being done uh, between, let's say, companies from certain countries and uh, Uzbekistan. And that means, you know, if you're an investor, you you really probably from a, from a particular country, you won't necessarily have a chance unless you do a direct deal as well. And many of these companies are coming from countries where their governments do not do direct deals. You know, um, so, uh, you know, so let's just give you an example of my own country here in the UK. Um, if there's a UK company that wants to invest in Uzbekistan, and um, then, you know, they heard that actually it would be easier to get the investment deal agreed if the UK government also put some money in uh, to subsidize whatever, they know they can forget it. The UK government doesn't do that. But they know that their rival company from another country, maybe not far away, will do that. And so that that has a chilling effect, as I call it, on certain types of investors from certain countries, particularly European ones and North American ones. So those are four reasons, I think, we have problems with invest. You know, and we do need to raise the investment uh, level, without a doubt, uh, because not just because it's a level, but because with foreign investment, you get all these other transfers of expertise, technology, management, culture, and things like that, that really would be good for Uzbekistan. How do you think this is related to the size and the scope of the government? You know, Soviet Union class more than 30 years ago, and if you look at the size of the government, uh, both in terms of flows and in terms of stocks, um, you know, the share of the government uh, expenditures in GDP is just below 40%, but, you know, it's undercounted because we have a lot of quasi-fiscal expenditures on the state-owned enterprise that are not part of this, but, you know, they are what it is, they are fiscal, <laughs> fiscal expenditures, you know, uh, the fact that we're not counting them in doesn't actually make them go away. Uh, and, you know, the in terms of stocks, you know, a lot of things are still owned by the government in any industry, basically, starting from agriculture, transport, construction, anything, uh, connections, and so on. Uh, everything, you know, the main sort of uh, industries are, are government owned. And in that situation, um, you know, do you think we should reduce the government in terms of uh, flaws or stocks? Because, you know, I have my own ideas, but I just want to hear what, 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 what's, what's your take on that? So, um, in short, my answer is yes, we, we should. Um, and you, you made, gave one measure, which is, you know, share of 
spending as a public spending as a share of GDP. You can give other, you know, share of economic activity, um, total economic activity. It's extremely high, um, and it's you know very very high indeed. It creates uh, huge inefficiencies. And then if you look at the size of the central state, um, the number of ministries the number of state committees, which also seem to be overlapping with ministries, number of agencies. There's a lot of duplication going on. Uh, again, I've talked to two couple of foreign investors recently who seem to be discussing the same issue with two or three different ministries because they weren't sure which ministries were even leading on it. So the size is uh, too big. Um, there are too many in, in, uh, public institutions uh, and there's a lack of clarity about who does what within those institutions. So this is definitely, uh, you're absolutely right, I think, on this is a big impediment, actually, um, generally, to pub good public administration and therefore to investment as well. But, you know, uh, earlier in the conversation, you said you're happy that the new ag agency for strategic development was established, or you just said that the Minister of uh, Investments and Foreign Trade was, was, was a good example of sort of governance. Yeah. But, you know, if we agree that, you know, size and scope of the government is over, um, sure. you know, it's too big, do you think it, it's warranted that the, the number of agencies that get, are getting established, which, which all have sort of noble intents, yeah. uh, is you know, warranted? How, how would you think of that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a perfectly, um, genuinely good question. So why do I think, despite me saying what I said just now, why do I think the agency for strategic development is a good idea? Because I think it's a disruptor. I think basically the Uzbek state needs a disruptor. You know, all these ministries, and I've walked around them, talked to all of them, all, they're all operating in a very old-fashioned way. This agency can disrupt things by being a, an island, an oasis of good uh, institutional practice, like, as I said, like AIFC in uh, Kazakhstan. It can be like that, and it should be structured like that. If it is structured like a ministry, then it's just adding to the same problem yeah. again. So we'd, it really has to be structured in quick teams which come together and then break up after they've solved an issue. And you have great different disciplines as well uh, coming in, just like I described earlier with the strategy unit in the UK. Um, and that will be the disruptor. It needs, it needs to do business differently from the ministries. Otherwise, you're right, it'd be just the same. And we'd, we'd just add to the problem. And if it can do show it can be done differently and in a different way, uh, then over time, again, I hope this will impact on, you know, the uh, style of government, the size of government, and the uh, sources of power in government as well. <clears throat> you know, the other thing that's been bothering me a lot in uh, Uzbekistan, and also in Kazakhstan, but in Uzbekistan is the, the very long hours that the state officials are working, and not just senior ones, but all of them are working very long hours. They work seven days a week. Um, they uh, you know, don't see their families to speak of. And if you're a woman, uh, particularly, this is very, very difficult then for you to make any, already the culture is, doesn't really, isn't very equal, uh, isn't at all equal. But then within that, if you have a style of working, it's seven days a week, you've got to be around. Well, women who are having kids want to be, you know, as mothers as well, or have, you know, also have to deal with elderly parents. It's, and of course, the younger generation will also want to be with their kids much more and support the elder generation. It makes it very difficult for the modern man or modern woman to flourish in that system because it's encouraging a seven day presenteeism, as we call it in the UK, uh, approach. 
And I, I, I've spoken to several ministers who are very unhappy and w- would like to spend more time with their families. They don't know their children well enough anymore. And I would question, frankly, and I would say this in any country, I think when you work seven days a week and very, very long hours with very little sleep, you're actually not very productive because you're tired most of the time. And, you know, that doesn't help as well. So we've got a whole bunch of issues on the public administration side to solve from, you know, structure, size, style of working, uh, and also hours uh, of working. Um, All of these need to be resolved as well. I mean, I agree. I think the, the government size and scope should should get reduced. And thanks for for, for taking it. Well, so we should uh, involve we should involve you in the work. <laughs> that is one of the things we're going to look at. So. Uh, uh, let me ask you. Um, I think I'm, I'm almost out of time. So I had more questions, obviously, than than we can cover. Uh, but there is one thing I, I'm thinking of. So there, I'll try to merge two questions into one. So just bear with me for a second. Uh, yeah. That's so a there's a few... good journalist. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not a journalist, actually. Like you know, like people, you know. No, you could, you comment. can be though. You, you should be. Do uh, have a very good career? Uh, I mean, I do it for for sort of public uh, benefit. Yeah, right. Like you know, I, I the part of it is is educational too. So a lot of students watch it and they comment and they think about it. So I think. You know, this is part of my service to the to the country. I mean, I'm doing my PhD here, but like, you know, yeah. I no, blog. I think, and I think I think it's great that you're doing it, and it, I'd never met you before, but <clears throat> but you know, my my whole unit, everyone, uh, you know, knows your stuff. Oh, really? Okay. All of them. Well, all the Uzbek staff knew it. So. Cool. Uh, I mean, I, I write in Uzbek, so that, I mean, I don't write for the you know Western audi- uh, like no. audience. I write it for sort of locals. Um, so there's a theory in economic development that says. Once you have a certain level of growth, then the good institutions and political institutions will come along. The competing theory says, no, 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 just wait a second. You have to sort of first build the institutions and then growth will follow. Obviously, I'm creating this fake dichotomy. Obviously, both things are important. Uh, but just, just for, for an answer, where do you stand on this debate? I think, personally, it's a more iterative process. Um, I think, uh, you know... Um, and I, this has shaped my, my own experience. And let me just tell you, I started my career uh, in Botswana, in sub-Saharan Africa. And Botswana um, had the good fortune to find diamonds. Um, and once it had found the diamonds, this is before it had good institutions, it then realized in order to um, make something of that find, uh, it had to build the right institutions, how to deal with it, what's the contract to have with De Beers, What's the sort of institution you need at the central bank or ministry of finance to deal with these things? And then also, um, how do you make the revenue share out fair amongst people? So suddenly institutions became built in almost in tandem as the diamond revenue started coming in. And there's an iterative process. I highlight Botswana, not just because I was there, but it's re- regarded by people who write about this, uh, you know, um, uh, as the one of the best examples of this iterative process of institution building with economic growth. Um, I think the same in uh, other countries, Japan, Korea, you could see the institutions were growing alongside economic growth rather than one before the other. But then to sustain, I think the important thing then to think about the second stage, the sustaining of the economic development, you do by then need to have the good institutions because you can decay very easily as well if you don't have those good institutions. Um, you, you know, you've heard about the middle income trap and so on. Partly, sometimes this is caused by the institutions actually not being sufficiently strong. 
so in my, my view in Uzbekistan, we really do need to build these institutions because suddenly we've got this major push on reform uh, and that will continue under this president. So it really is absolutely vital to build institutions at the same time because this reform will not, this progress will not be sustained otherwise. Every, every single question that you've asked me and every single answer I've given, I think there's always been some institutional issue um, in, in institution right. issue, right? I think that tells me that institutions really do matter in terms of creating the momentum for change and development. But it is iterative. I don't really believe you suddenly start with the perfect institutions and then growth comes. That life doesn't work like that. Very last question is, what do you think of political institutions and political reforms? And just to shape our discussion here. So when it comes to fiscal policy, and I and I you know follow fiscal policy quite quite closely, the parliament basically rubber stamps whatever the decision that the government makes. The courts are you know largely dependent on law enforcement. And if you look at a lot of indices like rule of law, as you mentioned, the main sort of concern and the main like lowest scores in there. I'm not saying indices are good actually. Like you know we just talked about gaming and so on. But just like for for this, I think uh, they are pretty accurate. They say that the constraints on government power are very limited. And you know there's respect to courts, with respect to law enforcement and so on. And um, so there, are, how would you think about economic growth in the light of this? So do you think we should like now, like, uh, you know, refocus our uh, efforts onto, onto those issues or should we like continue thinking about privatization and so on and so on? What I'm well, trying to think like- well, I, I think, look, I think you're right. I don't think you should wait uh, to just, you know, get all the economic reforms and then think about this. I think what you're describing is a political economy issue, which is also very important. And in the Uzbek um, system, I think it's not possible for parliament to reform itself, to suddenly say, oh, um, I'm going to hold you more to account, dear government, than before. I think the government and the president probably has to make the first move and say, actually, it would probably be better for us um, for the quality of policymaking, if there was more challenge uh, from Parliament. So when we discuss some aspect of the budget, like some aspect of fiscal policy, let's say education policy or whatever, uh, we do want you to challenge us and, uh, and discuss at least, I'm sure we wouldn't say we want you to challenge us, but at least let's discuss openly whether the balance is right between primary, secondary, tertiary education, for example, or have we got enough focus on the STEM subjects compared with, you know, and that I know is one of my, one of my issues in Uzbekistan is not enough focus on STEM subjects. Uh, you know, that sort of debate can be encouraged by a state that feels confident, doesn't feel, you know, it's any problem to have that debate. And there is no problem in having that debate. You know, um, there's no risk really in that. Uh, so I would start, I, I think parliament is actually a good place to start. Um, that sort of uh, slight shifting, if you like. Uh, in terms of holding governments to account. Um, so I would go there. Thanks a lot uh, so much, Akrabarti. Uh, it was really nice talking to you and I really enjoyed our conversation. I, I can go on and I hope to see you soon in Tashkent or you know uh, anywhere anywhere else and you know talk to you again. So thank you for being a guest of our program and uh, we wish you all, all the best. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bekshot. Uh, it was really enjoyable to talk to you. And I look forward to seeing more of you, maybe in Tashkent, uh, but also reading your stuff as well. Hoshimov's Economics.